welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visibview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. Joining me for this outing is a repeater and a heavyweight one at that. He is a Kentucky-based independent writer, researcher, and activist. He is the author of Uncertain Futures, an assessment of the conditions of the present, and most recently, Acceleration, Utopian Currents from Data to the CCRU. Uh, Folks, I am so happy to have the great Edmund Berger back with me for this show. This is um, a continuation of the Far West series here. Ed and I had quite a lengthy discussion about certain players uh, in the prior one. Then I opted to break this one up into two separate uh, pieces because it was close to a four-hour show. So hopefully this will make things a little more digestible because there is a lot of information in here. And it's important that everybody understands all of this. So on that note, let me outline this series for you. It is a continuation of the Farm's Storied World Anti-Communist League series, but with a twist. We are going to look at the evolution of the old Wackle Network, as the World Anti-Communist League is known around these parts, from the end of the Cold War up to current day events. And trust me, folks, it's simply incredible how relevant the Wackle legacy is in 2023. When Keith and John and I started the rest of uh, started the podcast series with the original Wackle crew a couple of years ago, we saw it as largely a historical undertaking. But as the show Keith and I did on Abe's assassination this past summer revealed, the old Wackle network is still around, still a player, but with a new generation of leaders and institutions that have carried on the work of the OGs. At the forefront of this revival is another subject as relevant now as ever, private military and intelligence companies. One of the contentions we shall make with this series is that the modern-day PMCs and PICs have effectively taken up the role, by and large, of the old Wackle network and like bodies. But whereas during the Cold War, Wackle served as a middle ground between Western elites from the conservative establishment and the neoliberal order alike to arrange things with a motley crew of international drug and arms traffickers, aging Nazi war criminals, and next generation black terrorists and religious fanatics and cultists of all stripes. It was an incredible milieu, to put it mildly, both sides of which largely still existing to this day. But incredibly, PMCs and PICs are where they're doing business on any number of levels now. At the center of it all was the most enigmatic of PMCs. It was an allegedly Russian-controlled private military contractor known as Far West Limited. 
But it was so much more than that, as we have seen over the course of this series. Indeed, it may be the driving force behind the present war in Ukraine and how Joe Biden ended up in the White House. And seriously, I, I truly wish I was exaggerating with that claim, but I don't think I am. Up to this point, we've explored the circumstances that spawned Far West, the origin stories of the people who founded it, and its role in the Great Ruble Scandal, the Moscow apartment bombing, and 9-11. In the most recent installment, Ed and I explored the infamous Project Hammer. Much of the information concerning Hammer derives from deposition given by the longtime U.S. intelligence asset Earl Koch Jr. shortly before his death in 2000. Throughout his lifetime, from Nuganhand up through Citigroup, Koch appears to have excelled as one of the world's premier money launderers. This has led to much speculation that what Koch was really up to was laundering funds from the so-called Golden Lily, a purported treasure trove of plundered gold the Japanese stashed on the Philippines as the tide of war turned against them. But as Ed and I noted, there are serious reasons to doubt these allegations. Project Hammer began at roughly the same time frame as Russian assets started disappearing from the Soviet Union and found their way into Western financial havens. This process accelerated along with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the gangsterization of the Russian security services. This capital flight, drug money, arms trafficking money, and likely funds generated from sex trafficking, all would have provided a vast treasure trove of unaccounted funds that could be used for a variety of covert operations. Uh, but this was a subject that was explored in depth quite a bit in the first installment of this series. would urge you guys to potentially go back and listen to that to get a little bit more backdrop if you're fuzzy on this. All right, so we made a pretty compelling case for where the Project Hammer funds were coming from. But a more important question is, what were they being used for? This is a lot of money we're talking about here. Hundreds of millions, if not billions. What kind of covert activity would have required this kind of funding? To answer this question, let's once again turn our attention to South Africa, its private military companies, and events that transpired towards the end of the 1990s going into the early knots, whole time frame leading up to and after 9-11. Some of the South African PMCs, along with Far West, were engaged in some serious smuggling that has profound implications for international security going into the 21st century. Trust me, folks, this stuff is incredible. You do not want to miss this one. And as with everything I do related to Wackle, this show and series is dedicated to the legend Ed Kaufman, alias Don Diligent. Ed was the driving force behind the original series, and hopefully we are doing him justice with this one. Ed, I hope I'm making you proud and carrying on your legacy. So on that note, let us start the show. <laughs>
Okay, yeah. can you get into the links that Stander and Van Royen had to uh, Eugene Koch? First, tell us a bit about uh, Mr. Koch as apartheid-era activities and then how he became involved with the dynamic duo. Yeah, so I guess um, just for clarity's sake, this is a, a, a different one from the Earl Koch that we've been talking about. Um, this Koch, Eugene de Koch, was... Um, kind of a infamous South African figure who was given the very telling nickname Prime Evil in the media. Uh, shortest way you can put it, he was an assassin and a death squad leader. Uh, he started off as a police officer in South Africa, and then in 1979, he helped organize what was known as the Covote Unit. I think that's how it's pronounced. The Covote Unit was a special counterinsurgency unit of the Southwest African Police Force. What it would do is it would target, you know, various rebel groups and freedom fighters, especially ones that were entering the region from Rhodesia. So Covote has been accused of numerous war crimes. We're talking torture of captives, assassinations and extrajudicial extra killings, uh, public executions, mutilation and use of dead bodies as terror tactics, rape on a mass scale. It's really horrible, horrible stuff. And the list, you know, really goes on and on when you start digging into it. So the Coke, he served with Covote for about four years from 1979 when he co-founded it to around 1983 when he was transferred to what was called C-10. And this was a counterinsurgency unit housed within the special services branch of the South African police. And, you know, much like Covote, C-10's activities revolved around assassinations and executions of anti-apartheid figures. And many of these were carried out at uh, Vlockplas, which was a farm kind of located on the outskirts of Pretoria. And this was kind of your kind of like a prototypical kind of black site type thing where they would go out and they would kidnap people. And then they would take them back to this farm and execute them without trial or anything of that nature. Um, so that that's, uh, you know, you're starting to get a good idea of who this Eugene de Koch really is through these two connections. Um, Rion Stonder, one of our dynamic duos, uh, he appears to have been a member of this C-10 counterinsurgency unit, or at the very least, he worked in conjunction with it. Uh, his main kind of role seems that he provided information to C-10, and given his ties to the National Intelligence Agency, it could be that he was like a liaison between the NIA and the, the C-10, you know, feeding them um, the critical info for them to carry out their counterinsurgency activities. Uh, it, it also appears that like some of the companies in the, the Stander and Van Royen East Corps syndicate, you know, that were central to Hammer, um, were actually originally formed as fronts for C-10 activities. I found multiple like South African press articles reporting, you know, that de Koch's name actually appeared on various uh, corporate documents that were being churned up in the course of this Hammer lawsuit. Uh, but like, funny enough, like when Hammer 
uh, began to break in the media, DeCook actually weighed in on it. And he said, oh, I never liked Stander. You know, he was a, a, you know, dude's a creep. He didn't have anything to do with C10. And he claimed that Hammer was Stander and Van Royen uh, setting South Africa up to take the fall for what he claims was really just private financial fraud. And so given that his name was appearing on various corporate documents, um, seems like he was trying to separate some of these critical links that had formed, you know, in the decade prior. Uh, so I think that's a good you know, introduction to how they tied in with these counterinsurgency operations. Yes, well said. Now, and against all odds, Barlow recounts how he was approached by Dukok uh, during the apartheid era and shot him down his offer. That is to say, it's too bad he didn't actually shoot him, but you know. <laughs> anyway, um, at the time, Dukok was accompanied by an enigmatic figure from South Africa's military intelligence. His name is Henry von der Westhazen, I think. At least this is what his name is officially listed as. I mean, a lot of these guys seem to all have fake names, but anyway uh keep him in mind we'll be hearing a lot about this guy he is a serial intriguer like all these figures and plays a big uh, role in the uh debacle from 2004 known as the wonga coup wonga is not discussed a lot in the states but it was a major deep event in the first decade of uh the knots nominally it revolved around efforts to overthrow the government of equatorial guinea E.g., otherwise known, or which I'll refer to it a bit here as, uh, as a West African country that actually served as the inspiration for the fictitious uh, country, a band of mercenaries carrying out a coup in, in uh, Frederick Forsef's Dogs of War. It turns out a real coup was planned in Ecuador, Guinea in 1973, one of which Forsef actually may have contributed a, uh, a significant amount of money towards. Eventually, when that fell through, he used it as a plot for the uh, book. Uh, this was before uh, Ecuador Guinea emerged as one of the most oil-rich regions in Africa. It's made EG even more appealing to foreign powers. By the time the 2004 coup was in play, multiple nations were actively uh, tracking it. The U.S. and the U.K. were, of course, being appraised. As Ecuador Guinea was a former Spanish colony, Spain was also in the loop. Finally, both South Africa and communist China were also being appraised to these developments. Or so claimed Simon Mann, a former SAS officer who held it, who headed the coup. And I'll point out too, um, China did, you know, we'd already gone over this a little bit before, but China actually was quite involved in uh, the arms trafficking of South Africa going back to the 1980s. They've tried to cover this up quite a bit, um, obviously because it's a little bit of an embarrassment for them now, but uh, they've had very long-standing links to uh, South Africa and the arms trade, and that's going to be interesting when we get into some smuggling here in a little bit. But anyway, Simon Mann worked with EO during the 1990s, executive outcome, that is to say. But it's been hotly contested to the extent of the role that he played. In Cry Havoc, Mann's autobiographical account of the Wonga coup, he alleges to have been one of the driving forces behind EO's activities in Angola and Sierra Leone, along with Tony Buckingham's one-time partner. Mann never claimed he was directly involved with the executive outcome, however, 
Ian Buckingham subcontracted with him through various companies, which we'll get to in a moment. Mann does claim, however, to have been deeply involved in the Angolan operations EO carried out in the mid-90s. Barlow, by contrast, insists that Mann had a very minor role in the Angolan operations and limited contact with EO. Regardless, <clears throat> Mann hired a lot of former Executive Outcome members, most notably the veterans of the legendary 32nd Battalion as mercenaries for the proposed Ecuador Guinea coup. Other figures linked to the coup included the Lebanese-Nigerian businessman Eli Kulil, I believe, who was close to French oil officials with Total, as well as Peter Mandelson, a major figure in the British Labour Party, who was instrumental in the administration of Tony Blair. And finally, there was good old Sir Mark Thatcher, the son of former Conservative Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Basically, the entire British establishment appears to have been backing this coup. It's why its failure is so intriguing. Basically, it was stillborn. Simon Mann and most of the forces were arrested in Zimbabwe before they even made it to EG, Ecuador, Guinea, on March 2004. An advanced team linked to the aforementioned Henry von Westerhazen had already been apprehended in EG around the time Mann's forces were detained in Zimbabwe. The ensuing scandal in Europe was brutal. Spain had a looming election in 2004, and the Madrid train bombing occurred on March 11th. This is just a few days, I believe, after uh, the EGQ uh, coup. Uh, while this distracted Spain's uh, from Spain's role in the coup, it also brought an end to the rule of the pro-U.S. Uh, Partido Popular, uh, Popular People's Party, whatever. At the time, Spain was one of the U.S.'s main backers in Europe for the Iraq invasion. The Madrid bombing was blamed on Spain, the Spanish support by the public and led to an anti-U.S. regime being elected. So how much of this was related to the Ecuador-Guinea uh, coup is debatable, but it was a huge blow to the U.S. to lose one of its few Western European supporters in Iraq. Uh, and it's also interesting to note, too, that this is again occurring in March of 2004. The U.S. had an election in uh, fall of 2004 as well, so another reason why it's fascinating so much of this is playing out around 2004 but anyway mark thatcher narrowly avoided a prison sentence in south africa it probably goes without saying but this was a major embarrassment of the british establishment uh, at the time when support for their middle eastern military adventures was also beginning to be questioned so the Wonga coup often comes off as a comedy of errors carried out by rank amateurs. But these were major figures of the British establishment with a lot of experience in regime change. Uh, man, I mean, he was a veteran of the Scots Guard and the SAS, for instance. Again, it seems like Barlow played a crucial role in foiling the coup, even if he downplays it. So... The man generally credited with blowing the whistle on the coup initially is a 32nd Battalion veteran known as Johann Smith, who uh, was basically the, the head of security for Ecuador Guinea at the time. Smith had been a source for Barlow during executive outcomes operations during the 90s, and it was through Smith that Barlow learned that South African military intelligence officer Sean Clearly and his strategic concepts PMC was backing UNITA in Angola during the mid-90s while Barlow and EO were supporting the MPLA there. 
At the time, Smith was working directly for Clearly and Strategic Concepts via a company called Omega Support Limited. So, as I noted in the first installment of this series, this network, along with the infamous arms trafficker Victor Bout, were said to be were said to be the cesspool that Far West grew out of in the mid '90s, according to the third Barbarossa. Sean Clearly would go on to co-found Aranus International, a major British PMC that was awarded extensive contracts in Iraq. Aranus was said to be a major part of the PMC network Far West belonged to, along with Diligence LLC and KBR Halliburton in the States and the UM and in the UK, the private military company Aegis International. Aegis was founded by Tim Spicer, a close friend of Simon Mann's. See, Simon Mann knew a lot of fascinating people, but Spicer was one of them. Along with Tony Buckingham and other figures on the British side of executive outcome, they went on to establish Sandline in 1997, shortly after executive outcome ceased operations. So after Sandline's own disastrous involvement in the coup, it was shuttered and Spicer bounced back with Aegis. Like Diligence, like KBR, like Aranus, Aegis also got significant contracts in Iraq. So it's also interesting to note one of Simon Mann's Russian connections during this. Uh, actually, this would have been a little earlier than this. That would be General Victor uh, Karpukin, I believe. Uh, yeah, Karpukin, who was the commander of the KGB's elite Alpha Special Forces. Mann knew Karpukin uh, through an unnamed SAS veteran, then heading a British PMC called Defense Systems Limited. So after leaving the KGP, Karpukin established his own um, PMC, Alpha A, using veterans of the Alpha Forces. And he partnered with Defense Services Limited. Later, Karpukin worked with Tony Buckingham and Simon Mann on behalf of uh, Devon Oil Turkmenistan. Supposedly, this was to get an oil exploration license there. But this is happening during the time Mann and Buckingham are working in Angola with executive outcome, i.e. around 1993-ish. So it's also interesting to note that Defense Systems Limited, Karpukin's partner for his Alpha A PMC, was founded by a bloke called Alistair Morrison. Morrison later replaced clearly as head of Aranus International. And from there, he moved on to Kroll. Because you knew Kroll was going to come up at some point in this shit. You didn't, you? Kroll is everywhere. But I digress, but only kind of. And oh, another interesting thing to point out about good old Mr. Sean clearly, I believe it was not long after this that he got. A rather prestigious appointment that was as the president of the World Economic Forum. Yes, Davos. This is Sean Clearly, the guy who allegedly, well, the guy that I have been able to trace as one of the most likely figures involved in setting up Far West. Okay. So, anyway. Got all these players linked to Far West seemingly involved in the Ecuador Guinea coup. And here's good old even Barlow potentially exposing it. Besides, Barlow had other sources informing him of a possible coup involving other ex EO figures. 
Originally, it seems to have uh, involved one in the Congo around 2003, and it was aborted. However, the Democratic Republic of the Congo would play a role in the Wanga coup as one particular private military company was highly active there at the same time Wanga was taking shape. Again, reportedly, Far West was also active in the Congo during this time, smuggling weapons there. Here's where things get really interesting. So, <clears throat> Simon Mann brought in another PMC to help with the Wanga coup. It was called Military Technical Services. At the time, it was headed by Nick Dutui, who worked with Executive Outcome in Angola during the 90s while he was with Military Technical, Solu Technical Services, or MTS. MTS was originally founded by a guy called Tai Minar around 1989. Briefly mentioned this guy in part one, but to recap, died suddenly in 2002 after being implicated in efforts to generate buyers for anthrax lifted from South Africa's CBW program, Budget Coast that I was talking about before. Reportedly, Minar's uh, partner even approached China at one point, sell anthrax to it a bit to uh, increase interest by U.S.-backed parties in the, uh, the chemical biological weapons he was pandering, the anthrax specifically, I believe it was. So let's put a little bit of this into some historical context with what was happening in the United States. In early 2000, a guy named James Patrick Riley was shot and wounded in Irving, California. It's touched off a series of strange events. Riley was shot at his office building for a company he co-founded called Biofilm Inc. His partner was a guy named Dr. Larry Ford. Police questioned Dr. Ford on March 2nd, four days after Riley's shooting. And not long after being questioned, Ford committed suicide. When authorities searched his home, they found a cache of firearms and explosive devices. And there were also reports at the time that anthrax was found there. But this was later denied by the CDC. This may be because Ford had worked with researchers involved with South Africa's Project Coast in prior years. Again, Project Coast was South Africa's notorious CBW program that was directed by South African Special Operations Forces during the apartheid era. Apartheid ended in 1994. This was arguably, as I said before, the most advanced CBW program in the Atlantic Bloc. And for years afterwards, there have been dark rumblings of various things being smuggled out of South Africa for this program once apartheid ended. Again, I also covered a lot of this in the installment of the Secret History of Fascism. I think it's part five, and I'll include a link to it uh, in the description for this. But anyway, you, you've got Dr. Larry Ford, thanks to Project Coast, who suddenly commits suicide after his business partner is shot. Mentioned to this day, nobody knows who shot uh, Riley either. And there were rumblings that Dr. Ford had anthrax. And then there's good old Stephen Hatville a former U.S. Green Beret and microbiologist who relocated to Zimbabwe in Rhodesia during the late 1970s. 
Rhodesia also had an impressive CBW program and may have conducted one of the largest military operational uses of anthrax during the Cold War, possibly ever. It's allegedly led to a lot of um, death of livestock and all kinds of other stuff in Zimbabwe. There's still repercussions from this alleged use of anthrax, but anyway, I digress. During this time, Hadfield was serving in the Special Operations Forces of Rhodesia, which, like South Africa, oversaw Rhodesia's CBW program. Again, I covered a lot of this in the fascism show, so go check that out. So, Rhodesia falls around 1980, and Hatfield then turns up in South Africa. He stays there until apartheid ends, then returns to the U.S. after living in Africa for nearly 20 years. And not long afterwards, he goes to work for another notorious U.S. private intelligence company called Science Applications International Corporations, or more commonly known as SAIC. SAIC has hosted many spooks on its board over the years, one of them being Robert M. Gates, former CIA director, eventually became the DOD under Obama. Gates is a figure closely linked to Far West by Left RU website where the third Barbarossa was published at and where a lot of the investigative journalism far west was done back in the knots so anyway Hatfield is actually working on a war game scenarios for SAC around the late 90s and early knots when he's implicated in the 2000 anthrax letters and these war games also involve biological weapons He's later cleared, and Bruce Irvings is fingered for the letters, and Irvings commits suicide as well before authorities can properly question him. Needless to say, there's a lot of unanswered questions about these events. But beyond that, the anthrax letters were part of a bigger, sort of uh, solidifying kind of a siege mentality in the U.S. following 9-11. And one of the suspects had a long-standing links to Southern Africa and the CBW program. And this is coming a year before the bizarre series of events involving Dr. Larry Ford, who was directly linked to Project Coast. I think Stephen Hatfield was also involved with it as well, but we don't know that for sure. And while Taimanar would have been trying to, and this was also around the time when Taimanar would have been trying to sell anthrax, while he's heading in PMC, possibly going to the far west milieu, while Robert Gates, also linked to this crowd, is possibly sitting on the board of SAIC. I haven't been able to confirm when Gates was active in SAIC, but I think that it was during the 90s, uh, after the end of the Bush 1 administration, and um, before the Bush 2 administration started, so i.e. the Clinton years. But anyway, Hatfield's an employee for SAIC, so and all of this is really suggestive. Another interesting case of anthrax potentially intended for terrorist uses in the U.S. comes via microbiologist William Levitt Jr., who was arrested by the FBI in 1998 along with right-wing extremist Larry Wayne Harris for possession of anthrax. Charges were later dropped, naturally. But it came after Levitt, uh, but it came out that Levitt ran biolabs in both Las Vegas and Frankfurt, Germany. We'll be addressing Frankfurt again soon, so do keep that in mind, kids. So anyway. Can I ask something real quick? Not, not to interrupt. Uh, yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. I'd go for it. Okay, so um, th this is just kind of, you know, maybe off the wall, but did any of this have any ties to the uh, kind of um, 
series of deaths of microbiologists, if you remember that, like around 2000 after 9-11. I don't uh, know, but it's it's really interesting because a lot of this stuff is playing out. You know, this is why I keep trying to emphasize the the time frame of all of this, because I think this is something a lot of people overlook is how much of all this is all playing out around the same time period. Yeah. Well, I, I ask because I, and I didn't mention this earlier because I haven't, you know, had time to sit down and kind of look through it and research it further. But I did find an article from March 2002 that linked several of those microbiologists that turned up dead to the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Um, so there might be something interesting there to find. I mean, there's just so much stuff with all of this. Yeah. I mean, just wanted to throw that out there since we were yeah, talking about yeah, the, yeah. the Institute, see if you had any thoughts. Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely important, I think. I mean, we'll, you know, again, we'll keep getting into this. But yeah, the CBW angle, as I've been alluding to, is highly significant in this, and nobody ever talks about it. So anyway, um, right. but uh, uh, Timonar dies possibly via CBW in uh, 2002, and the TUI, TUI ends up in control of uh, military technical services. And he has a curious partner by the time the Wonga coup starts to go into play. Good old Henry Vander Westhazen. This is the same guy who approached Barlow with Eugene de Kook, uh, de Kook during the CCV days. That's the Civilian uh, Cooperation Bureau. That was basically a private death squad slash drug and money laundering thing that the South African Special Forces ran. Um, Executive Outcomes actually began as a front company of the CCP. I think Military Technical Services was as well, but I'm not entirely certain of that. But anyway, so the same de Kock who worked with Standar and Von Royen. Okay. But it gets even better. So Dutui is hired to supply Simon Mann with troops for the Wonga coup. But he needs to hire another PMC for that. And this one is called Meteoric Tactical Solutions. One of the founders of this outfit was a South African Special Forces veteran named Harry Carls. Carls worked with Executive Outcome in Angola during 1993, where he first encountered Simon Mann. It's also... Uh, abbreviated as MTS. It's actually interesting how they both have the same initials, the Military Technical Services and the Meteorite Tactical Solution. Yeah, I get them confused. I think that was probably done deliberately, but, you know. Anyway, so another guy linked to the Meteoric uh, MTS is a character known as Pestus von Royen. Is this guy related to... Johannes von Royen that we've been talking about or possibly the same person? I have no idea. Well, Koch said that he used lots of aliases. Yes, he did. He yeah. did. But it, it it's curious. Uh, but beyond that, this meteoric technical solution, tactical solutions, has been cited as a major partner of Far West in the Third Barbarism by the Left RU crowd. In fact, this was allegedly as the main PMC Far West grew out of. Its background is quite murky, though it seems to have been founded at the same time around the late 90s. Like Aranus, Diligence, Aegis, and all the other PMCs that we've been talking to about that were in the Far West milieu, it was rewarded with bad contracts in Iraq. 
And against all odds, Barlow claims that an unnamed senior member of Executive Outcomes signed a contract with the Democratic Republic of the Congo on behalf of EO behind Barlow's back. They then redeployed troops under um, Executive Outcome that were under contract with Executive Outcome to the DRC. And this is interesting in light of what a central role the DRC seems to have played in the origins of the Far West. Barlow goes on to allege that there was a cabal within Executive Outcome that set up gatekeepers, quote unquote, to prevent him from learning what other components of the company were up to. So who could Barlow be talking about? Well, there's, there's no shortage of candidates. Simon Mann comes to mind immediately, potentially Tony Buckingham as well. Seems to have distanced himself from Mann later, but in cry havoc, Mann insists Buckingham was still backing him behind the scenes. Another possibility is Lafaras Lutening, a senior executive outcome director, unlike Mann or Buckingham. Lutening uh, briefly headed EO after Barlow retired, but before the company shuttered its doors. And then he later took over PMC Cone Saracen International, originally a company founded by Executive Outcome to do security work. It seems to have taken up a lot of Executive Outcome's functions after it folded. So we'll get into some of that in a little bit here towards the end. But in Cry Havoc Man implies these figures were connected to his network. And finally, there's Harry Carls and Meteoric. I don't get the impression he was a senior figure in Executive Outcome, but he may have been linked to the intrigues in the DRC. This could explain the bizarre behavior of the figures uh, linked to the two uh, MTS PMCs in that period leading up to the Wonga coup. So as I noted before, Barlow hints the network behind the Wonga coup had earlier toyed with one in the DRC around 2003. During the run-up to the Wonga coup, Nick Detui, Henry Vonder, Westhazen, and Carls all seem to be attempting to link projects they were involved with with the DRC to Wonga. This further complicated the Ecuador Guinea coup in addition to leading to additional leaks regarding the planning. So what was going on with all this? While Barlow and Mann agree on little, they seem to agree Detui was blameless despite his strange behavior. Detui is who was tasked with infiltrating Ecuador Guinea and preparing the field before Mann's team began the actual assault. As such, he met directly with Ecuador's government frequently leading up to the coup. In theory, he was using his day job as an arms broker as cover. But Mann had earlier suspicions. Detui insists on using the Congo as a staging ground for the assault. Was he conspiring to use uh, the Wanga coup as a cover for a coup in the DRC? Was he actually working for the Ecuadorian government against Simon Mann? Both Barlow and Mann seem to dismiss either. It's interesting to note that Detui uh, brought in a German businessman named Gerhard Mertz to procure the planes from Eastern Europe. We've got at least one from Ukraine that used an Armenian crew. So Mertz is a really Mertz is a really interesting guy. While often described as a German, he spent most of his youth in Israel. And from Frankfurt, he ran an airline. Remember that William Levitt guy also had a lab in Frankfurt that where he might have been developing anthrax at. So Mertz ran an airline called Central Asian Logistics, GmbH. In 1994, 
Bill Clinton signed an executive order that accused Mertz of, quote, proliferation of nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons. Specifically, he was accused of arranging sales of materials for chemical weapons to the governments of Iran and China between 1991 and 1993. It's really interesting, right? Especially with him being based out of Frankfurt, which again was right around this time. This is where anthrax, a suspected anthrax smuggler, William Levitt, had his bio lab in Frankfurt. All in the same time frame. Okay. Again, we've already talked about how China keeps showing up in a lot of this here. Again, China's possibly involved in smuggling with this guy tied in with Wangaku for very advanced, very dangerous weapons. Weapons of mass destruction. Actual weapons of mass destruction. Okay, so at some point, Dutui and Mertz got to know one another. Mertz provided him with planes and air crews. Many were Armenians who provided who were provided by a firm called Tiga Iria, I believe. Mertz was apprehended in Ecuador, Guinea, along with Dutui and his advance team. Mertz later died on St. Patrick's Day, allegedly after being tortured by Ecuador Guinea officials while he was in their custody. And despite being a German citizen, the country did nothing about this. It's a lot there that's very interesting. So for one, there's a possibility that Mertz was a Jew from the Soviet Union who was allowed to immigrate to Israel during the latter days of the Cold War. For another, he was also accused of trafficking chemical weapons, as was Ty Minar, founder of Detroit's main private military company. Mertz also seems to have had strong interests in Central Asia, major region of operations for Far West Limited. And of course, at least one of the planes came from Ukraine. And remember, Vladimir Filin and some of the other directors were Ukrainian nationalists. Far West was engaged in high-stakes smuggling in also during this time. We'll get to that in a moment. So was Merz potentially murdered to cover up these links? As we shall see, there were a lot of strange deaths occurring around the time frame relating to the smuggling of these weapons of mass destruction. This would have been around the time of 9-11 going up to the mid-noughts. Okay, keep all this in mind, kids. Okay, so let's return to Project Hammer for now. Uh, well, actually, there's one more thing I want to make point here. I want to make right quick too about Simon Mann, since I don't know if we're going to be talking about him too significantly here. But um, another one of Simon Mann's associates, as well, was David Kimchi, uh, big figure in the Israeli Mossad for a lot of years, and also a guy uh, connected to Robert Maxwell. Um, hey, could you just go over Kimchi here, like right quick, and some of the Maxwell ties? Because you know, again, this all just keeps popping up again and again. <laughs> Yeah, so David Kimchi was an Israeli Mossad officer. Um, he was one of the key figures in Iran-Contra. Uh, one thing to kind of keep in mind about Iran-Contra is it was a multi-country kind of operation. You had the Americans, the Israelis, and Iran. Um, and so you had kind of participants from each country meeting and setting up these arms deals uh, David Kimchi was the Amer or the Israeli representative in those, and so he met very closely with um, various important American officials, as well as international arms dealers like Adnan Khashoggi, 
who, you know, was, uh, you know, you've mentioned him a lot in this Far West series, but he was also the person who advanced the money and handled a lot of the logistics that got those arms deals off the ground. Might add that that money was moved through Khashoggi's BCCI bank accounts. So uh, kimchi is close to, you know, all kinds of intrigue, not just in the Middle East, but Africa. And Africa seems to be his main kind of specialty. He was very close there to a man named uh, Tiny Roland, who ran a huge kind of um, conglomerate company called uh, Lonro. It was basically one of these appendages of the old British Empire that still sort of maintained its colonial holdings in Africa, albeit in privatized form. Roland was a friend and sometimes business partner of Robert Maxwell and David Kimchi and Robert Maxwell were both very, um, yeah, they, they knew each other well. Um, of course, Khashoggi and Maxwell knew each other. We're, we're talking about a group of people who are interlinked on maybe the most profound level and kind of operated behind the scenes of all the kind of arms dealing and trafficking of weapons and money laundering that facilitated all these various covert wars that we're talking about. And the kimchi connection to Maxwell does seem to have continued on um, maybe into the early 90s. I, I do believe that kimchi, if I'm not mistaken, uh, might have died under strange circumstances, but I might be confusing him with another Iran-Contra Mossad guy. Um, but uh, th there's a lot more that could be said about him, but nothing like a, it, I'd have to go back and look it all up to really give the clearest view. Yeah, I just wanted to bring up the fact that, again, you know, I mean, Maxwell is sort of like lingering in the background yes. of all of this. And it's important you know, not just for the obvious reasons, you know, which I mean, you guys might be assuming are just sort of with the money laundering and um, potentially the sex trafficking, other things like that. Um, but it's also the fact that really Maxwell's major expertise in espionage was scientific espionage. You know, his, uh, it's not again talked about probably as much as it should be, but he played a significant role in the theft of promise software, and especially with the Israelis putting in a trap door to it, which might have been related to that uh, follow the money program. Mm -hmm. just, and also throw that out there. And also, I mean, he uh, was the one who sold promise to a lot of African countries as well. But even you know, well before then, I mean, he had been involved, I think, in scientific espionage, most likely going back to at least the fifties. Um, Pergamon Press which was really the uh, the cornerstone of his uh, financial empire for much of his life, had pretty much an entire monopoly on scientific publications coming out of the Soviet Union. So he was deeply involved in sussing out what the Soviet Union was doing with their scientific programs, and he was basically the gatekeeper with access to a lot of this literature too. So... This is a big component of Maxwell that, again, nobody talks about, and this goes into the whole thing with Epstein and the fact that Epstein was also funding a lot of weird scientific stuff that nobody wants to talk about. So, again, keep this in mind because it's going to come up again when we get into the end of this, all right? But let's return to Project Hammer for now.
So we've talked about how a figure linked to Eugene de, uh, de Kock was involved in the Wonga coup. And here are other people linked to de Kock, Standar and Von Royen. Uh, the figure linked, by the way, was that uh, Von der Westhazen guy. Uh, but anyway, uh, Stander and Von Royen, they were central figures in Project Hammer. But these guys also appear to have links to executive outcomes. It comes through a company called Bridge International. And against all odds, even Barlow acknowledges its links to executive outcome. He's very specific about which companies were and were not involved with the EEO network. Of this one, he writes, quote, uh, this is from pages 764, 765 of his book, quote, a business development company based in Pretoria and Ludana, its main fields of operation were in reconstruction and development, education and training, which is highly intriguing right there, and agricultural services, owned 100% by SRC. SRC, Students for Strategic Resources Company, which was the holding company behind EO, Saracen International, and a lot of these other companies. So, Ed, how do uh, Stander and Von Royen tie into Bridge International? So the key connection here is that so-called um, East Coast Syndicate, the apparent umbrella group that Stander and Von Royen, their network of companies was nested within. Uh, in the course of the lawsuit, you know, they came up with various kinds of diagrams to show how the various companies kind of interlinked within the East Coast Syndicate. And one of them had the name Bridge SA. And this was a company that was registered in Liberia, which is a country of critical importance. And it was a hot spot of uh, countless intrigues, though uh, intrigue is probably putting it very mildly because these did include a very violent and brutal civil war. Um, a lot of this took place, you know, it was a key component in the Cold War and well into the 1990s. Yeah, if you saw the yeah. Nicholas Cage film Lord of War, that's essentially based off of a lot of the events we're describing. It's a good uh, representation of that. Of course, Nick Cage character was probably based on Victor Blum about uh, who you know gives a big partner Far West Limited, <laughs> and um, also too. I mean, this a lot of the conflict was also between Liberia and Sierra Leone. Yes, it kind of bleeds into the different PMCs we've been talking about. You had like executive outcome back in Sierra Leone. You potentially had uh, Sonic Clearly's PMC or some other ones active in Liberia. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, there's a lot of these intrigue that potentially gets EO out of there so that Sandline that was founded by Man and Spicer can move in. And so there were a lot of intrigues also being played out by these um, operators and these PMCs and africa uh which is you know just i don't want to keep you on a sidetrack but this is why this is so important because you're basically seeing how this kind of neo-colonial quasi british east india company system is mm -hmm. imposed on the developing world but anyway yes so anyway well, that's a, a really good way of putting it and you know don't not going to go too in depth because it would be going too far abroad but modern liberia is very much um I don't want to call it a creation of it. Its development was very much shaped actually by people involved in the World Commerce Corporation. So <laughs> there's a history that goes back to that. And one of the things that they did was set up what was called the Liberian Shipping Registry. And that is what birthed the like flags of convenience system 
or, you know, if you have a tanker ship or whatever, you can get like flags for Liberia or other countries. And it just kind of, you know, allows ships to skirt various laws and regulations, which is something we did see in Lord of War. Um, there's a huge story there, not going to go into that, but just something to kind of keep in mind about how long this history um, truly is. But to wrap it back to um, Bridge, so this Bridge essay is registered in Liberia. And what one of Stander's associates that was dis deposed in the course of the lawsuit is a man named Peter Goslar. He stated that Bridge SA was part of what he called, quote unquote, the executive outcomes operation. And so that raises the big possibility that Bridge SA was related in some way to Bridge International, maybe as like a subsidiary or maybe like some kind of holding company. Um, the South African press, I have found articles, they did report on connections between Bridge SA and Bridge International, um, but the details on that are kind of murky, right? Um, there's kind of like two interesting points about this that you know we'll kind of we'll come back to in a minute the, the first one is you know the uh involvement you know you mentioned a, a minute ago about sierra leone and executive outcomes like role there so after that conflict came to an end there was a uh, executive outcomes kind of quasi subsidiary called branch energy and it gained a lucrative mining contract in Sierra Leone. This was diamond mining specifically. And so one of the things that Liberia is known for is that it's an infamous transit point for the diamond trade. Uh, basically, you have large international diamond concerns like De Beers. Uh, they often source their diamonds at deep discount by purchasing ones that have been diverted into like gray market or black market channels in Liberia. So a lot of diamonds are sourced, you know, in Sierra Leone or in South Africa, but they end up really, you know, flowing through Liberia into the international market. So that puts an interesting kind of perspective on the dynamics of these PMCs in Liberia and Sierra Leone. Um, the second point that's very intriguing is this Peter Gosler character who links bridge essay to executive outcomes in his deposition. Um, he was a, apparently a friend of Stander, or at least somebody that he knew. Um, David Guyette, he writes in his Project Hammer Reloaded article that Gosler told him that he knew Marcus Wolf, the East German spymaster. And the thing is, is that Gosler is actually mentioned in Wolf's autobiography. It's a book called uh, The Man Without a Face. And in there, if you look at it, like Gosler appears, um, he's described as an East German intelligence officer who is dispatched into West Germany under the name uh, Antony Rogue. And he was the control officer for a woman that East German intelligence had infiltrated into West German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt's office. And he ended up getting busted like in 1977. And according to newspapers from 1978, Gosler was sentenced to 12 months in prison. Now, what's interesting is that the Gosler that Guyot interviewed for his Hammer articles 
says that he knew Marcus Wolf, but denies that he was the same person described in Wolf's autobiography. So make that, you know, what you, you know, I don't really know um, what the answer to that conundrum is, but it is interesting that when um, Van Royen was finally tracked down to, you know, give this affidavit in the Hammer lawsuit, he wasn't in South Africa, he was in Germany and seemed to have had longstanding ties to that country. So that's just another wrinkle in this whole kind of, uh, you know, wh whatever you want to call this, the strange mess that Hammer seems to have been. Yeah, the other interesting thing about um, Marcus Wolfing name too is that uh, Wolf was uh, one of the uh, people uh, linked in the book Putin's People, which we'll be uh, talking a bit about more uh, in a second here by Catherine Felton, uh, as one of the figures involved in uh, setting up the uh, you know the uh, uh, the Soviet funds being laundered out of uh, Russia and other uh, satellite countries during the 1980s, uh, that he worked with Vladimir Putin, who was, of course, stationed in East Germany uh, during the uh, the late 80s on this project. So, again, it's it, it tracks very much with uh, the allegations that Project Hammer grew out of a uh, operation to track the flow of Russian flight capital. So, again, Marcus Wolf, yet another guy implicated in this. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, kind of before the reunification, um, I believe that East Germany, you know, was very hard up for kind of hard currency. So it started trading arms to basically anybody that would buy them, including lots of um, anti-communist forces in Angola and elsewhere. So I also had that in mind with the potential wolf connection. Yeah. Yet another really interesting one on in all this. Um all right, Ed, so how about this mysterious document that appeared at plans uh, hinting to destabilize Africa and indicating uh, two separate groups and executive outcome? Yeah, so this document was drafted in kind of the mid-1990s, maybe getting into 97 or so, by members of the South African National Intelligence Agency. And it details a plot to carry out kind of this destabilization program against the ANC government in South Africa. And it's like waves of assassinations and generalized strategy of tension type stuff, as well as like, you know, your usual economic warfare. And it doesn't seem that like the exact program per se in the document came to pass. Um, it is interesting that this is kind of happening around the time that Far West was launched. And um, it also makes references to the use specifically of online disinformation, uh, this use of new media technologies, which I know is kind of a trademark of Far West, as you've um, you know talked about in some of the past episodes in this series. Yeah, just... Uh, for those yeah, of you unaware, um, Far West essentially owned the online version of, um, is it Pradova? Pravda. Pravda, yeah, 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 yeah. So they would go on and essentially do what we would think of now as a lot of shit posting about each other throughout like the mid-nots. Yeah. Like villains, like Sirkov's a CIA plan, and then Sirkov would be like, no, villain's really the CIA plan. You know, I'm just like, <laughs> Basically, the directors of Far West are getting on there and like calling each other names and whatever. It's 
actually kind of hilarious in some yeah. level. But... <laughs> the the you... first time I ever looked into Far West, I was so confused by that dynamic. Yeah, but again, it's you know, it's only really confusing if you haven't tracked some of the murky history of special yeah. operations. But again, I you know, and I always like to emphasize this: psychological warfare is a major component of special warfare mm -hmm. uh, again in the american the u.s army special operations command and also the u.s special operations command psi wars paired with um, the special operations forces you know, again and, and this has been the case in really a lot of uh, other intelligence services in the west i mean it probably goes back to the uh, ministry of economic warfare during world war ii which housed the special operations executive which was sort of the prototype for the uh, special air services and uh, on the other hand in house the political warfare executive um the french used a similar setup uh, at least i know up through the 50s and 60s with the special operations forces and the psi war officers uh, basically working together uh, they were also the group that mainly led the coup uh, against or attempted coup against de gaulle in the early 60s and Again, several of the veterans of that all ended up or running against her press, which is another one you could really point to really as a prototype for Far West. But again, her press really, you know, it did a lot of paramilitary stuff in uh, Africa again. And um, also it was linked to a lot of terrorism in Europe, especially in Italy during the years of lead. But it was a bona fide press service and most of its activities were involved in psychological warfare. So... You know, this is has precedent in, I mean, groups like Igenter and what have you uh, for what Far West was later doing with a lot of this stuff with Pradvia and all this other uh, kind of strange uh, behavior like that. But yeah, I mean, psychological warfare is considered an operation, not, uh, you know, an intelligence gathering or analysis function. So this is why in a lot of uh, Western security services, it's more of a military thing and typically a component of special operations forces which many people don't realize right that perfectly well said when you throw you know new media you know your social medias or just digital connectivity in general it just opens up so many capacities for that and that really does seem to be like one of what far west honed in on and it's kind of cywar capability so i am very intrigued by this document, you know, pointing to this destabilization plot um, around the time that Far West was launched and also kind of, you know, talking about this new media dynamic. And it becomes even more kind of suspicious when we start to look at who is named as the actors that would carry out the, this destabilization in the document. Um, so according to it, this plot involved two interlinked groups, one of which was called the South African Group and the other the Palace Group, which was based in the United Kingdom. So at the very top of the South African Group was a company that you just mentioned, uh, Strategic Resources Corporation. And under it, there's lots of familiar names like Executive Outcomes itself, Military Technical Services, Bridge International. And so then when we flip over to the Palace Group, there is Heritage Oil, which is the company of Tony Buckingham. He's you know, the 
you talked about him earlier. He put up the money to start executive outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, he was, uh, yeah. and also too, to sort of point out right quick, the, the business model essentially executive outcome used was that uh, Buckingham would put up the money for uh, these different African countries to, to hire executive outcome uh, as either guards or to help them, you know, fight out a counterinsurgency or something to that effect. Yes. And in exchange for putting up the money for executive outcome services, he got concessions for oil or gold or diamonds or whatever the resources that the country happened to have. Again, this is why I, you know, really emphasize this was basically a form of neocolonialism because Buckingham was really working, even though I believe he was a veteran of the special boat services. There's a lot, he's another one of these figures. There's a lot of mystery around his background, but um, he was primarily working uh, or he was, you know, mainly his big thing in all this was his interest in these uh, oil companies that he owned and uh, mining companies that he owned. And he was basically trying to procure uh concessions from these different African countries in the aftermath of the Cold War, and EO was a big way of getting them from them. So anyway, that was uh, basically how all this was working out in yeah. practical terms. Th yeah, thank you for clarifying that, because that's going to make sense as we kind of unpack this a little bit further. You know, like I said, like, under the Palace Group, you have Heritage Oil, which is, you know, this um, uh, oil company that Buckingham, you know, operated. So that's a perfect example of it. Right there. Um, Bridge International is mentioned again. And so that's Bridge is listed in both the South African group and the Palace group. Um, another is Branch International. Mentioned that earlier. That's the one that got the diamond mining uh, contract in Sierra Leone. Um, and then Sandline is also mentioned in the Palace group as well. And according to the documents, the Palace Group is based was based at 535 Kings Road in London. And if you look that up, that is the address of like Tony Buckingham's um, heritage oil and other companies that he was operating. Um, one of the companies that makes up the Palace Group, and it's one that the document seems to be very, very focused on, was a Canadian mining company called Diamond Works. Now, Diamond Works was launched in 1996. So this is right in our critical period. And it had links to a number of like very notorious figures in Canadian mining. Um, I kind of went down this really bizarre rabbit hole involving one of Diamond Works investors, a company called Ivanhoe Capital. And this was the corporate vehicle of a Canadian mining bigwig named Robert Friedland. And this dude's story is so fucking weird. Um, he came out of the U.S. And in the 70s, he was busted for selling a mountain of LSD tabs to an undercover law enforcement officer. And then, you know, he ends up getting that expunged for whatever reason. And then turns up running a free love commune on an apple orchard that his uncle gave him. And he brought to this commune a friend that he had made shortly prior a young Steve Jobs. Apparently, the two had met when Jobs had showed up to sell Friedland a typewriter, and then Jobs was enticed into watching Friedland have sex. And this made them, you know, best of buds. 
Uh, Friedland brought jobs to his Apple commune. And then doing LSD, by the way. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, I figured. Um, I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, that's the impression that I got. Um, Jobs went to this Apple commune and was so inspired by it that he named his company for um, (laughs) for the commune. Hence, this is literally the origin story of Apple. And so then at this point, Friedland dips out of his free love commune moves to Vancouver and builds a name for himself as one of the most ruthless mining magnates in the world. And then in 1996, he invests into this diamond works and becomes a partner of what is basically a bunch of people from executive outcomes. Um, Besides the role of Friedland, diamond works really just appears to have been a front company for the executive outcomes crew. Uh, there's a book called The Heart of the Matter, Sierra Leone, Diamonds, and Human Security that lays this out a bit. And I'll just name, I'll just quote like a couple of passages. Uh, the author writes, after the executive outcomes operations in Sierra Leone, Eben Barlow became a shareholder in Diamond Works. Tony Buckingham was appointed as a member of the Diamond Works board, with Buckingham being its single largest shareholder. Uh, Simon Mann owned 50,000 shares of Diamond Works. Rupert Bowen, an ex-Army off British Army officer, was seconded from Diamond Works to Sandline for their Sierra Leone operations with the blessing of the CEO of Diamond Works. Um, and that's just like a few examples of what is actually like a very exhaustive list. And there's other books I found that give even more details. I think it's clear that it makes, you know, it's clear what Diamond Works was and why the office, the authors of this document would be so kind of concerned with it operating in their country. Uh, But there's one final connection that I do want to mention about Diamond Works. Um, So it was founded in 1996, or more properly, it was like organized out of a number of earlier companies that existed, but were kind of put together in 96, but it was really operational in 97. So it corresponds in time to um, the document being written and to the formation of Far West. Uh, But then we have that Diamond Works was based out of Vancouver. So in the deposition of Earl Cokes Jr., there is a section that refers to hammer transactions taking place in Vancouver, Canada in the year of 1997. So taking place in the same location and the same time as the launching of this PMC-linked diamond company. Um, Coke was asked about hammer funds being held in the Bank of Montreal. And he stated that this was true before adding that in 1977, there was, or 1997, there was what he called an interest payoff. You know, this is the dispersing of the interest generated by the bank accounts, you know, that held these funds. And one of the recipients was a man named Barry Wombolt. Um, And from what I can glean from newspaper articles, he seems to have been a real estate developer. I did find a Canadian business directory from the late 1980s that shows that he ran like a securities trading company with the very bizarre name of World Development of Seven Circles Corporation. Um, Was there a connection between kind of this Vancouver side of hammer transactions and diamond works? 
Um, I found no evidence to suggest that Wombolt was connected to the Diamond Works crowd, but the bank that was holding the hammer funds here, uh, Bank of Montreal, was very close to Diamond Works, especially to the mining companies of our LSD peddling free love guy, Robert Friedland. So a lot of the timing and the locations and the circumstances here um, really do seem to line up and it makes kind of a mirror of the bridge connection. And so it makes me wonder, you know, at the end of the day, you know, like, is this all about moving those assets and using them to finance PMC operations and neocolonial activities in Africa? And it seems very clear to me that the answer is yes, you know? Yeah, and it's interesting. I believe Barlow addresses the document against all odds, too. He is fairly dismissive of it, but he seems to effectively have been hinting that there was this sort of like two executive outcomes uh, functioning within the company, one that was more under the uh, control of the British, and then there was the other one that was more uh, South Africa-centric that he was heading which is what the document does say. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, it's also interesting that Barlow really emphasized Project Hammer in it too. It's another thing that he sort of brings up randomly with Von Royden and Standler and whatnot. Oh, but... he actually does talk about Hammer? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, no, it's it, it, I, it's fascinating because he even provides a website uh, that has uh, this online document that has a lot of information on Hammer that you can download. Uh, you need like a specific security key and some other. Oh, stuff. that that's David uh, Gayet's website then. Actually, I don't know if it was. It was it Gayet. Yeah, Gayet. His website does have like a security key that you need to get the doc. The... Okay, so they can track like who has it. Then okay, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. But you can find them and, in, in, you know, if you use like Pacer and stuff, you can get these court documents through other routes. So, yeah, Barlow specifically endorses that one in the book. So, okay. yeah. I didn't realize that. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's very fascinating. So, yeah. And like I said before, Barlow appears to have really been the one behind the Wanga coup. So, I mean, a lot of this is really fascinating because it seems like there's been an ongoing rivalry between these two factions that is basically playing out in Ukraine right now, um, <laughs> which is a good way to uh, segue into Ukraine, which is going to dominate a lot of the uh, remainder of this episode and uh, the next one or two, potentially, that we're going to be doing here. So anyway, 
<clears throat> there have been online allegations for several years now, mostly again from the crowd around left RU, that Far West was involved in smuggling nuclear weapons out of Ukraine in 2001. This would have been around the mid-noughts when the events first started to come out. Specifically, either six or a dozen KH-55 cruise missiles were shipped to Iran. Another six went to China. They were also said to be four 200-kiloton nuclear warheads smuggled, but it's less clear who got those or how many they each respectively got. However, the credibility of these sources has been questioned, as well as the perspective they presented by the American commentators weighed in on them. It all started around 2005 when allegations on the internet made by people using false names, this would have been the whole crowd around Pratlia that we were just talking about, started to emerge linking far west to smugglers. Vladimir Filin himself took to the web to refute them during that same year. But two Hoover scholars, John Dunlap and David Satter, cherry-picked several of these allegations and ran with them. Without naming Far West, they described it as a Russian-controlled cabal that staged false flag operations with the Moscow apartment bombing. Later, Peter Dale Scott weighed in and brought some clarity to these allegations, but he still linked Far West primarily to the U.S. and Russian government. The first mainstream acknowledgement of the smuggling and Far West involvement came from the Australian Sun Herald. Herald Sun. Uh, the paper was reporting on the murder of an Iranian Australian man named Sar uh, Sarfraz Hadier, I think. He was said to be one of four people murdered in connection with Far West and the cruise missiles. Hader was murdered in 2004. At the time, he headed the Australian-based SH Heritage Holdings LTD. He had been living in Australia for over 20 years after growing up in Iran. It's interesting to note that Hadier's son alleged that his father had been involved in such activities, that is to say smuggling, for some time in the article. Uh, specifically, he said that his father was involved in procuring nuclear secrets from Iran from the AQ Khan network during the 1980s. Intrigue. Uh, leads into a lot of the Iran Contra arms trafficking. Hader appears to have been involved in all of that in the 80s. Okay. Anyway, it wasn't until 2012 that uh, really firm evidence of this started to come out. It came via a report called the Odessa Network. It was issued by a think tank called Center for Advanced Studies or C4ADS as it comes and goes by. Well, this is a fairly marginal think tank. This particular report was sponsored by Palantir. We've name-dropped about every other major freaking PMC. It was about time that they showed up, right? A defense contractor and a private intelligence group that was co-founded by Peter Thiel of the PayPal Mafia. He was also a graduate of Stanford, which hosts the Hoover Institute. So, it's really interesting. Even here, the narrative around Far West is being framed by figures connected to Stanford, which also has a really interesting medical facility, I might add. As such, it shouldn't come as a surprise that this report, like the earlier efforts by Satter and Dunlap, tried to implicate Putin in Far West schemes as a central player. 
This is especially interesting in light of the allegations coming from left argue about the caper around the nukes, namely that figures close to Dick Cheney and the Far West milieu were the driving force behind the sale of the nukes to the Iranians and the Chinese. Specifically, it was said to be Halliburton and Diligence LOC driving the sales. The reasons for this are complex. Some within the Russian security services may have viewed it from the perspective of Sergei Kurgenya, uh, geopolitical, his uh, Sergei Kurgenya's geopolitical conceptions. Basically, this saw Russia, the US, Israel, and India in an alliance against China, the Islamic world, and old Europe. Curiously, this hypothetical alliance still seems to be influencing the American uh, alt-right. So uh, certainly something that still has legs from at least a propagandistic perspective. But anyway, it's far more likely that the neocons viewed this as an entrapment operation for both Iran and China, providing a pretext for future wars. After taking out Iraq, a strike on Iran at that point would have further deprived China a source of oil. It's also possible Cheney was looking to counterbalance Israel's influence in the Middle East. It's interesting that there's a general lack of an Israeli presence in the Far West. I mean, like I said, you know, I mean, like Simon Mann, for instance, had ties. Uh, but I mean, it doesn't seem like he was anywhere, you know, near close to the inner circle of the Far West. Uh, but regardless, a more militantly anti-Russian network prevailed among the neocons. Still, this may provide some insight as to why Putin would have tentatively supported such a network in the early days of his regime. For obvious reasons, a U.S.-Russia-Israeli-India alliance would be the best of all possible worlds for Russia, right? Not that you would ever get this impression from Western accounts of the nuke smuggling. Naturally, any links to Halbert and her diligence are left out. It was around this time, IEO 5, that the regime of Viktor Yushchenko leaked letters from a colonel in the SBU, that's Ukraine's uh, equivalent of the CIA, acknowledging the smuggling but pinning it on Russia and Rusvorgina, which is uh, the big state-owned arms uh, production uh, company. Uh, this is especially interesting in light of the political situation in Ukraine at the time, which we'll be getting into in the next installment. But basically, this is the whole, um, you know, Orange Revolution era around 2004. Anyway, I'm going to quote for, uh, now from the intro of this uh, report that uh, uh, C4ADS issued on what they dub as the Odessa network. So we can have their definition of said network to work from here which is really uh significant to these smuggling allegations so anyway <clears throat> taking from page four of the report which is also called the odessa network the executive summary so quoting <clears throat> a network of ukraine-based individuals and logistics companies referred to herein as the odessa network due to its key leadership being located in odessa ukraine is responsible for transporting weapons out of Russia and Ukraine on behalf of government sellers. Evidence suggests that some of these companies may transport weapons to the Assad regime in Syria, among other notorious violators of human rights. The Odessa network is a loose collection of logistics contractors for the governments of Russia and Ukraine, not independent arms dealers. Key companies and figures in Odessa include the Calvi Group, 
Phoenix Trans Services and their high-level political connections via key facilitators such as Boris Kogan. The companies work with the state weapons export agencies such as Rush Virginia and U.S.Port, I think. Uh, Odessa, anyway, that's the state-owned Ukrainian arms company. Uh, Odessa Network company leaders have personal and financial relations with cabinet-level officials in the Russian and Ukrainian governments, including a personnel advisor to Putin and senior Russian military industrial figures. The Odessa Network centers on a group of Odessa-based private companies that regularly move large arms shipments affiliated uh, EU and Russian shipping firms such as uh, Breezy Sherfots, which is a subsidiary of BPC Chartering, and a Blechart play uh, an important specialized role in transporting particular larger sensitive shipments. The network is deeply interconnected. Personnel and equipment frequently cycle between different companies, and many networks members are family members, close friends, former classmates, etc. The vast majority of weapons shipments leave from the Ukrainian port of Okpispart, which was specifically built by the USSR to move weapons. For example, this was the point of origin of the Cuban-bound missiles in 1963. Despite being located in Ukraine, Ubespark is functionally controlled by Russia. The port manager is a former Russian Navy captain, and the port owner is a Gremlin-linked oligarch. Russia state weapons export agencies and Odessa network firms maintain offices and personnel in Ubespark. The Ukrainian firms also engage in non-weapons businesses, freight brokering, crewing, chartering, etc., and operate in global shipping centers such as Hamburg, Rio de Janeiro, Singapore, and Dubai. To protect their weapons shipments, some of the Ukrainian and Russian firms own or contract with multiple private maritime security companies who also operate in Africa, African conflict zones. That in mind. <clears throat> weapons and non-weapons shipping activities generate large profits for Odessa network leaders. They put their money in both legitimate ventures and a well-known network of Panamani and shell companies and Latvian banks that have been used for money laundering by other entities, including the Sinaloi cartel and Hezbollah. They are also active users of U.S. and EU financial institutions. Understanding and tracking Odessa network activities is valuable in several ways, since the Odessa network consists of the prime transportation contractors for Russian and Ukrainian we weapons export agencies. Tracking their shipment movements is an efficient way of determining weapon destinations. This is particularly helpful because Russia and Ukraine are the main weapons suppliers to countries such as Syria and the DRC, the Republic of the Congo. Gosh, didn't we just mention that? Anyway, this report identifies over 20 previously undiscovered shipments of unknown cargo by Odessa Network Link shipping companies from Abosk to Syria in 2012 and 2013. Finally, our report proposes an alternative hypothesis that examines the high volume of Syrian ships moving unknown cargo between Osport and the Eastern Mediterranean in 2012. The inclusion of any company in this report is not intended to apply participation in legal activity, and a judgment as such is far beyond the purview of this research. Indeed, most of the activity described here is perfectly legal. Rather, the goal of the report is simply to bring some measure of transparency to an otherwise oblique industry and to try to paint everything as being Putin's fault. <clears throat> so, 
here's what the four ADS report said concerning Far West's role in the smuggling of those KH-55 cruise missiles. Specifically, it's taken from page 12 of that report. Covert deal brokered, brokered by corrupt Ukrainian and Russian officials, including from Minister of Defense and State Security Service, and I believe this is of Ukraine, used fabricated contract with Russian defense export firm Rushvanyajinya and a series of front companies, including Progress and Far West Limited, to export weapons inherited from USSR and held in Ukraine. All parties involved except Igor Urbinsky of Calby Shipping died under mysterious circumstances. Then head of U-Spec Export, Valerie Maliv, died in a car crash on 6 March 2002. Australian-Iranian Haydar Sarfraz died in a car crash in 2004. Olev Orlov was arrested in the Czech Republic and extradited to Ukraine, where his throat was slit in prison. Sergei Petrov died in a car bombing in Africa in Johannesburg, 2004. And Vladimir Filin disappeared, but he was almost surely not dead, unlike everybody else aside from Urbinsky. So again, all these guys are all starting to die between the time frame of 2002 to 2004. And keep uh, Urbinsky and Calby shipping in mind, because you'll be hearing a lot more about them in just a minute here. Okay. But it's interesting to note that basically they argue that Far West Limited was a front company for Calby Shipping. And again, Calby Shipping and Igor Urbinsky, they show up in the Panama Papers. It's a similar setup to what we've been describing with executive outcomes and just the series of different, all these different companies related to it, these various networks, okay? So anyway, this was the first of two events the report links far west, the far west milieu to. The second was the later smuggling of the same type of weapon systems to China, but the same network. A little later on, on page 31, the report notes, quote, The only instance of advanced weapon systems definitely being sold without governmental knowledge was the chronologically first event in our data set, the export of Ukrainian X-55 missiles, by rogue Russian intelligence officers in collaboration with corrupt Ukrainian officials and Kelby shipping in Iran and China in 2001. I'm guessing the major reason why they argue that this was done without government knowledge is because, you'll see, you can't link this to Putin. This is the only really major instance of, like, major smuggling with weapons of mass destruction that showed up. Okay. But anyway... Um, but this probably wasn't the only instance of that, but again, I digress. Uh, and likely it's also not including chemical and biological weapons, which at least one South African PMC may have been smuggling during this time. Remember, Time Minara also bought the farm in 2002. Right around the same time, it was starting to come out that they were smuggling bioweapons with the MTS that he headed. Okay. However, it's very interesting to note that the C-4 ADS report never mentions the nuclear warheads. The only credits in the networks was smuggling the advanced weapons systems. 
As for Putin, much of the connection supposedly comes via Rusvoyagenia, Russia's state-owned arms exporter. And in fairness, Putin does now exert tremendous influence over Rusvoyagenia. Catherine Belton's Putin's People, which is an anti-Putin track with materials supplied by Far West's very own Anton Surikov, one of the directors of the company, alleges Putin's hold on Rusvoyagenia didn't occur until 2004, when he appointed his former KGB colleague and trusted advisor, Sergei Chimezdov, I think, to head the company. I think, uh, by the way, Chesmizov uh, might have worked with Putin in Germany with Marcus Wolf, if I'm not mistaken, but don't hold me to that. But, and in light of some of the stuff we've been talking about, that's very interesting. Uh, but anyway, this was well after the Far West group smuggled the nukes out of Ukraine. Okay? But the timing of this appointment is most interesting. It occurred again in 2004, time of the Wonga coup, Ukraine's Orange Revolution, or the Madrid bombing, and the election in Spain, and the election in the United States. Okay, but we will definitely be getting more into the Orange Revolution in the next installment. But again, it needs to be emphasized all of this stuff is playing out in 04, okay? Far West is implicated in a couple of these deep events here. Okay. So another company described as crucial to the Odessa network and involved with Far West, as I was just getting at, was the Ukrainian shipping firm Kobe Group. Kobe Group. This outfit was implicated in at least 10 arms trafficking deals over the decade considered in the C4ADS report. It was founded in 1996 by that guy, Igor Urbanski. He was the son of a KGB officer, but one who was born in Georgia. Which is also interesting because of events that happened in 08 in Georgia, which is also something that we'll be getting into at some point here in the Ukraine-centric stuff. But anyway, hence he may not, Urbanski may not be ethnically, ethnically Russian. Further, his power base has long been based out of Ukraine. Besides control of the Kalbi Group, he also served as Ukraine's Deputy Minister of Transport from 2006 to 2009, basically the Yushchenko regime, and he continued to serve as a deputy in the Urkhovnaya Radia, that's the Ukrainian legislative body, until at least 2012. So many of the other locations that Kalbi was accused of sending arms to, such as Angola and Venezuela, Nations where Far West was reputed to be active in during this era. Again, the report called Far West a front company of Calvi. Okay. Urbinsky and Calvi later sued C4ADS for misrepresenting its activities in the arms trade circa 2014. This largely brought about open discussion of Far West and related players to a halt. Another co-founder of Calbi, Boris Kogan, the guy who was just mentioned in the report, did appear to have links to Putin's inner circle via RT Logistica, which was headed by uh, 
Kimosov. Kogan was one of Logiska's board, was on Logiska's board and was uh, the only member who was not a senior Russian defense figure. But when Kogan was, but when Kogan was appointed, it's a little ambiguous. Again, Chimizov uh, did not take over until 2004, well after Kalbi was deeply engaged in questionable arms trafficking out of Ukraine. Further, Kogan died in 2017 under murky circumstances. This came at a time when Odessa arms trade went through a major shift after the Euromaidan battles of 2014 in Ukraine. Gradually, ethnic Ukrainians were once again had once again solidified the hold over the uh, trade. Right, so I'm going to quote from. So this was an article of uh, online uh, website Zavaronia. It's called "The Secret Pass of Ukrainian Arms Smugglers: A Zavaronia Investigation." It was from August 27th, 2021, and it was by. Oklasander Humnok. Oh, so sorry. It was uh, an excellent work. To um, makes me wish I was much better at pronouncing this stuff. Uh, he did a fantastic job with this. But anyway, uh, getting into the section here, what has changed since the start of Russian aggression? <clears throat> After the annexation of Crimea and the outbreak of hostilities in the Donbass in the spring of 2014. Russia-Ukrainian cooperation, both legal export and smuggling of weapons, practically came to naught. Ukraine needed protection, so all the resources of the military industry, industry were used for domestic demand. The implementation of export contracts temporarily had to be stopped. The National Guard was understaffed and with T-64 and BTR-3 tanks, which were intended for Angola and Thailand. After 2015, the situation somewhat stabilized, but Ukraine failed to reach its previous export volumes. If before the war, the country was in the top 10, or ex, uh, top 10 arms exporters in the world, it's interesting, then after that, it fell by several steps. The structure of deliveries has also changed. The main part was high-tech products like guided anti-tank missiles. The large-scale trade in Soviet stocks disappeared since the warehouses were thoroughly devastated by the war. Now, the primary source of income for the Ukrainian defense industry is the sale of Kosar and Stungia P export names, Skiff, anti-tank systems, and other precision-guided munitions from the Luch State Kiev Design Bureau. The leading importers of Ukrainian weapons are China, Thailand, India, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. Again, a lot of companies, there are a lot of countries that show up again in the allegations around the Far West, especially Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and China. But anyway, according to Andrea, that was a source uh, in the SSB, the, yeah, it says here, the former employee of the Security Service of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, the current president of Ukraine, is not interested in dealing with arms issues. The leader of the state head outsources to the SBU. But essentially, uh, the Russians had really muscled the Ukrainians out of the African arms trade, which is very, very lucrative get to that here in a second uh, but anyway my suspicion is that 
After the free-for-all of the Yeltsin years, uh, which carried on into the early knots, Putin tried to rein things in, especially after nukes started uh, disappearing. <laughs> and in fairness, this was probably more over money and strategic interests rather than any moral objections. So Chi Mizov is installed basically as Russia, Russia's arms are, and Kalbi is brought into the fold via Kogan. This is at a time when relations between Putin and the West were breaking down, but most likely the arms trade was too lucrative for either to abandon at this point. Again, as the article just noted, Ukraine was in the top 10 exporting countries in the world at the time. But after the Donbass and the Crimea, the Russians appeared to have largely forced out the Ukrainians, especially in regards to the lucrative African trade and arms. Just said but we'll explore that more in the next installment when we get deep into Ukraine and the crucial events that unfolded during the knots that really led to what's happening today. Right now, there's one last point I wanted to make before we wrap up here. Another interesting thing in the C4 ADS report is that many private military companies active in the Gulf of Aden during the height of the Somali pirates, i.e. roughly 2008 to 2012, were linked to the Odessa network. Among the PMCs named were the Morin Security Group, Muse Professional Group, Helicon uh, Security, Cheng Suk Security Group, and Alminia Security Group. Many were staffed by former Russian and Ukrainian military men and intelligence officers. The appearance of these PMCs occurred after a Albi ship was hijacked by said pirates. It's cargo looted weapons intended for the Sudan. It just so happened a lot of those PMCs are linked to Calvi. Okay. So it would seem that they became active in the region with these, you know, private military companies uh, using shipping gear after this incident when it was exposed that they were shipping weapons to the Sudan. This was all during, you know, the whole thing with Darfur and all that stuff. Okay. So, obviously, as we'll get to here in a second, Sudan is now once again really important. Uh, but Calbi was not alone in being active in the Gulf of Aden during this time. Certain South African group had set up shop then as well. I'm going to quote from a book here called The Modern Mercenary by Sean McFate. Uh, Modern Mercenary Private Armies and What They Mean for World Order on pages uh, 140 through 141. After the Nizora Square shootings, Eric Prince, founder of Blackwater, left the United States for Abu Dhabi, where he became a dealmaker within the industry, connecting companies with clients and vice versa. He helped the South African PMC Saracen International win contracts from Somalia's belligerent government to protect its leaders, train Somali troops, and battle pirates and Islamic militants. Saracen was formed from remnants of executive outcome and is managed by Lafares Ludenin, a former officer in South Africa's Civil Cooperation Bureau, which, as you might recall, Edwin de Kook, or Edwin, uh, de Kook was uh, also involved with, I believe. Uh, certainly some of these other characters that showed up in it, including Ewan Barlow. So anyway, uh, this was a convert government-sponsored hit squad that operated during the apartheid era and is now defunct. 
His legacy certainly lives on. It's my uh, editorial comment, by the way. Saracen operates independently of all international and multilateral framework in Somalia, and little is known about the firm's intentions other than profit motive. Between May 2010 and February 2011. By the way, I should point out Sean McFaith, the guy who wrote this, was an employee of Dying Core, so there's um, you know, a little bit of a rivalry here. But anyway, it trained, equipped, and deployed fighters in an attempt to create one of the best, quote, the best equipped indigenous military forces anywhere in Somalia, according to a UN report. Saracen's training camp near Bosassia was the best equipped military facility in Somalia after the UN base in Madagascar. The company planned to establish a force approximately 1,000 strong equipped with three transport aircraft, three reconnaissance aircraft, two transport helicopters, and two light helicopters. The maritime component of the force would be equipped with one command and control vessel, two logistical support vessels, and three rigid hold, rigid hold inflatable boats for rapid deployment and intervention. Using shell companies, Saracen secretly shipped military equipment into northern Somalia on cargo planes, which the UN report declares the most brazen violation of the arms embargo by the PSC. Worse, the company's presence has aggravated already tense relations in the region, and a UN accused the PMC in several reports of trying to form a, quote, private army. You don't say. Anyway, finally, local authorities and the UN force commander asked the company to leave uh, Mogadensia, which it did. Suffering from negative publicity, Saracen did what many multinational corporations do in such situations. It rebranded itself, just as Blackwater did after the Missouri Square. Luningen formed a new PMC in Dubai called Sterling Corporate Services with the staff that worked for Saracen. Their employer was the same as Saracen II, the United Arab Emirates, which secretly contracted the PMC to create the Puntland Maritime Police Force aimed at preventing, detecting, and eradicating piracy, illegal fishing, and other illicit activity in the coast of Somalia. The Sterling's base included a modern operational command center, a control tower, an airstrip, a helicopter deck, and about 70 tents, which it can which can host up to 1,500 trainees. Sterling is an example of a strong PMC, like executive outcomes, as it accompanied Putland forces on combat missions. The 2013 documentary film The Project shows the company was in action along with a South African trainer acting as a door gunner in one of the helicopters. One of Sterling's employees... Uh, Lorraine Peterson was killed when, while the Putland Maritime Police Force was conducting an anti-piracy operation in Hul Anon, a district in Ikebushban, that pirates use as a base. In June 2012, Sterling abandoned its operations, leaving behind an unpaid but well-armed security force in Putland. The Sterling Corporation Service is not the only PMC seeking business in Somalia. The State Department contracted DynCorp International to equip, deploy, and sustain and train international peacekeepers from the Ugandan and Brigadarian contingent. Additionally, it indirectly financed the Bancroft Global Development to train African troops to fight Al-Shahab. The firm offers United States a convenient way to fight its war on terror in Africa without committing its own forces to the battle for fear of becoming entangled in the conflict and attribute of neo-medieval warfare. 
As Johnny Carson, the State Department's top official for African explains, we do not want an American footprint on the boots on the ground. This is all really interesting for a lot of reasons. So as for the Sudan, in order to ship weapons to it, you have to go through basically the Gulf of Aden, which is right there in Somalia, right around much of Somalia, where uh, you had all of these instances of piracy happening, especially like around the period of 2008, 2012. All right. So how has a ship raided in 2008 i believe by the pirates and that exposes them trafficking weapons uh to the sudan where basically there was uh the genocide happening in Darfur, right and shortly after that they start founding their own private military uh companies uh specifically private military shipping companies to more or less protect their arms shipments there, even though the report doesn't come out and flat out say that. But also, at the same time, you see a lot of these South African groups, specifically linked to Saracen International, show up there. Calbi was, at this point, still run by Igor Urbanski. Vladimir Fillin's former business partner, and according to the four uh, CDAS report, C4ADS report, uh, the guy who was using Far West as a front, again, that's debatable, but certainly there was some kind of arrangement with this. It's basically here working the same period with the Saracen International Group. Again, Simon Mann claimed that the Saracen guys were his comrades at arms. He even mentioned specifically in Cry Havoc that his former allies and executive outcome were battling Somali pirates around 2008. Okay, so again, it's just really interesting that same groups are showing up in this same particular region. And again, you have the whole component here of weapons mass destruction hovering in the background. Guy in the Wonga coup, Gerhard Mertz, the German, was murdered around 2004 as well. He was implicated in trafficking nukes, chemical, and biological weapons to Iran and China during the 90s. Later, Far West Limited is implicated in trafficking nukes, or at least cruise missiles, and most likely also nuclear components to Iran and China during the early noughts. Okay, 
And you have the whole fact that MT, you have the two different MTSs, the meteorite company that was closely linked to Far West in um, the Third Barbarossa. And you have the military technical services, which was founded by Time and R, potentially as an offshoot of the Civilian Cooperation Bureau. Time and R died suddenly in 2002. He was implicated in trying to sell anthrax in the black market. And around the same time, you had Dr. Larry David, you know, who was also ties to Project Coast in the United States. And he's also was accused of having anthrax in his possession around the time of his suicide. And there was also William Levitt, another guy making anthrax in Frankfurt, Germany, where Mertz was based out of. So there's a lot of evidence that this network was deeply involved, not just in any old arms trafficking, but in very advanced weapons, weapons of mass destruction. Now, this is why it's interesting in light of the Sudan now once again being back in the news. Because what turned up in the Sudan recently due to the recent disturbances there? Why a CBW lab like the one that was recently revealed in Ukraine. Isn't that interesting that there appear to have been these black CBW laboratories active in two countries the Far West Network was implicated in? when they also had ties to these South African PMCs that were engaged to Project Coast and had access to very advanced chemical and biological weapons research. That, that, that's, that's quite a coincidence. Don't you think it is, Ed? Um, yeah, it seems pretty weird to me, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it took me a second to find the unmute button. That's all right, man. It's um, it's quite a coincidence, and certainly in the case of um, Ukraine, you have another major PMC, the Wagner Group, which is one of the major uh, um guys that are active in the Baccarat, I think, region, which is where they have that, that huge underground mine complex, which, you know, for my money, would probably be where you would have a very secretive CBW facility. I don't With know... the Sudan one, has there been any, like, information on the owner of the lab or what company? No, no, might... they haven't. They haven't. But they've also implicated the Wagner group of supplying weapons to one of the groups there. But again, it's debatable how legitimate this is, though, in that case. Mm -hmm. It might be that they're trying to muddy the water. But yeah, Wagner is interesting that it shows up in this and potentially the fact that they might have been the one that procured the CBW lab in Ukraine. Because one of the big South African PMC Puwals I've been mentioning is who helped the Russians set up Wagner back in 2008. Okay. So, it's not a coincidence you see Wagner showing up here anymore 
then Ukraine and the Sudan are coming up in this. I would bet bottom dollar on that. All right. So this is very important. And, you know, I hope you guys that have stuck with us throughout these installments, you're telling people to go out and listen to these because this is at the heart of a lot of the intrigues that are playing out right now. You know, we've already been exploring a lot of the Game of Thrones that played out period between 9-11 and 2004 and we're going to look more deeply into that when we start getting into ukraine and what was driving the russians but this was already pretty serious back then so you can imagine what the stakes are now with this kind of stuff right i mean you know you're basically seeing these labs being seized potentially and what have you which in and of itself is very interesting so yeah um and once again, you know, to kind of bring it back to some of the things that you were saying, it, you know, at the beginning, Ed, I mean, you also had the Hughes Medical Institute that was tied up in all these intrigues with uh, Hammer as well. Mm -hmm. The Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which mm -hmm. does all kinds of uh, biological engineering, neuroscience, Department of Defense funding, um, big time research lab that is now located in Maryland. Yeah. So this is a group here, you know, that was linked to Project Hammer. Barlow, you know, implicates Project Hammer as being a part of all this milieu in his own frickin' book, right? Okay, so again, back to the original premise of this about Hammer being linked to the Golden Lily. Well, I, I think we've really laid out a pretty good case here, but what I'm describing here is a very advanced network or a network that is involved in very advanced uh black scientific research okay involving probably most specifically chemical and biological mm -hmm. and potentially also nukes okay this is a network that's going to require a lot of funding and as we have outlined here a lot of these groups have interests in mining in a lot of regions of the developed world where they have access to gold, diamonds, to platinum, to a lot of precious metals that could be used to fund this kind of stuff. They're also deeply involved in arms trafficking, conventional arms trafficking, which produces a lot of money. And again, as we've outlined a lot here, drug trafficking. Ugin Han was deeply involved in drug trafficking. There's a a lot of allegations, a lot of compelling evidence. Far West Limited was deeply involved in drug trafficking. Okay, we talked about that throughout all this. Drug trafficking produces billions of dollars of years in revenue. All right. And then finally, we haven't talked about this a lot, but again, there's there's also the specter of sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. This, Okay. I mean, throughout like the 90s, up through the knots, almost half of the freaking models you saw you know, on the runways in Paris and New York City, they were coming out of former Eastern European or Russian countries, okay? Same areas where, again, the Far West people were operating at. A lot of smuggling with that. At least one PMC, Dying Corps, was directly implicated in trafficking girls, all right? Jeffrey Epstein ended up with a lot of those girls from these parts of the world uh, in his operations, okay? Same guy who was connected previously to Robert Maxwell, the guy we've been talking about with all the scientific espionage, guy who was funding his own weird scientific research. Okay. So this is, I think, what 
Project Hammer was really about. Uh, not some mysterious bottomless um, vault of confiscated Japanese war loot in the Philippines. 100% agreement. Yeah, and I mean, again, I hope that, uh, again, this is getting out there because this is very important uh, for what is currently happening in the world and <clears throat> has very dark implications. Then you're on the current path here. Ugh. I think on that note, it's a good one to end it on. Um, Ed, did you have anything else you wanted to add here before we sign off? I, I don't think so. I think I got to you know get in everything that I wanted to. Um, of course, you know I, I highly recommend that if people are interested in following up on this story, uh, you can get these documents. You know, if people want to like reach out to me on email or Twitter, you know, they can find me pretty easy. I'm happy to share anything that I have with. Anybody who wants to keep, you know, plumbing the depths of Hammer. Yeah, and uh, we will continue plumbing the depths of Far West Limited. Definitely, we will uh, be getting into Ukraine in earnest in the next installment. And brings us into how the uh, Biden regime became uh, so deeply entwined with all of this. It's an interesting story like all of this. So stay tuned, kids, for that one. And anyway, on that note... Uh, sign off for now as always thank you guys so much for listening and your support and with that good night and good luck to you all come on baby pick me up out here in my wiki up sick and tired of fucking up sick and tired of pushing luck voodoo blue got juice in it swallow what i'm about to spit don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this i took it to the goat jay my people there, they're feeling me Down low, skin low, more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki up Stuck down in this stick, hut is hot as hell I tell you what, put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump down, turn around Do it for me, stick it out Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace Go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the great While the greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, 
legalize it, no need to advertise it. The weed cures a cancer, everybody even caught or realized it. But pharma don't make cash money when we rock that stash, honey. Best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy with people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ, talking about that BMC. Got no economy if we ain't got no enemy. The Popo and the BP, DHS and Army, Honeywell and L3, Razor Wires, UAVs, Officer, excuse me, please. Said I'm just eating my burrito, not the droids you're looking for. See you all on payday, see you at the Safeway. Bisbee lives on crazy checks, BP on that fast pay. I sing my hooly blues, y'all. I don't make the rules, y'all. Just paying my dues, y'all. But I'm just saying, sorry, hippies. If Great White Father don't make payroll, forget about your maple. It's just the one thing that ain't too clear. I said people always bitching about the government here. But that war administration's our whole civilization. 